A reading from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Can you hear me now? All right. We're going to ditch the Britney Spears thing then. All right. Just in case you weren't awake, all of this was planned so that we could get your attention. Just something out of the ordinary. All right. With all of those distractions now aside, let's go to our God in prayer. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning uh, for the gift of your word. We thank you for we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your glory that you, by your grace, God, allow us to see. Uh, so Lord, this morning as we encounter your word, we pray that you would help us to behold you, that you would help us to see that you are the father of lights, the giver of every good gift. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So I want to begin with a question. Should friends offer honesty or unconditional support? That was the title of an article that The Atlantic put out a few months back. And the article cited two philosophers on opposite sides of the issue. On the truth-telling side is a philosopher named Alastair McIntyre. According to McIntyre, the willingness to be scrupulously truth truthful, that was his word or his phrase, in difficult moments is the core of friendship. 
He points out that all humans have blind spots. And so a mark of a true friend is to come alongside someone and say, I care enough about your welfare. I care enough about you to have this difficult, awkward conversation to potentially tell you something that you don't want to hear. He says, friendships survive and flourish only if each friend can rely on the other's truthfulness. Well, on the other side of the issue is the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche. Just remember, there's nothing that Nietzsche couldn't teach you. Actually, <laughs> actually, there's quite a bit that Nietzsche couldn't teach you, but that's a whole other thing. See, Nietzsche held that it is precisely our willingness to keep our mouths shut in the face of a friend's error that allows any of our friendships to survive. He once wrote, Almost always, such human relationships rest on the fact that a certain few things are never said. Indeed, that they are never touched upon. And once these pebbles are set rolling, the friendship follows after and falls apart. Have you ever had that experience? You see something that concerns you and a friend, and when you bring it up, immediately a wall goes up, and you almost never are able to get to the other side of it. In recent years, we had a friend who started a romantic relationship with a guy that felt somewhat confusing. Um, this guy was also a friend, and he was lovable. He had many good qualities, but he was also a mess. And so when our friends started dating this person, we're like, what, what are you doing? And a few people took the McIntyre approach, and they, and they pulled her aside, and they tried to point out, like, hey, you guys probably aren't a good fit. There's some things in this relationship that are concerning. Well, all of that advice, all of that truth-telling ultimately fell on deaf ears, and the relationship ended horribly. And this person, at the end of it all, said, I wish someone would have pulled me aside and told me what they really thought of this person. And everyone's head exploded. <laughs> well, I think in our culture, we've all taken on perhaps inadvertently, Nietzsche's position. So often we end up doing what we want to do, and offering advice is proving increasingly futile because we've recognized and succumbed to the power of desire. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do even when we know it has the potential to end disastrously? I think the real answer is, because we want to. As James writes in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. See, the Bible recognizes that at our core, we are desiring creatures. As the Christian philosopher James Smith writes, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. So then if we want to avoid disaster, we need to make sure that our wants, our longings, our desires are in line with what God calls us to. So this morning, I want to look at this passage in two parts, two, not three. Whoa. <laughs> Those two parts are first, the power of desire, and second, the goodness of God. So let's first look together at the power of desire. And I want to read once more verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now these verses are extremely important for us to to recall, to recognize when we are in the midst of trials and temptations. When we face trials and temptations, and we will, and when we give in, and we will, we need to recognize that the temptations themselves are not from God. Why? Because God has no place with evil. Now, this does not mean that God is not at work in the midst of those trials and temptations. He most certainly is. But the evil desires themselves cannot be attributed to God. See, it's often easy for us to blame God for our sins, right? Because this is what we've been doing from the very beginning. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, their first instinct was to make excuses and ultimately blame God for their failure. Right? We see that very clearly in Adam's response to God in Genesis 3, verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, God asks, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam responded, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. God asks Adam, what did you do? And Adam immediately tells God, look, it was, it was her. And wait, how did she get here? Oh, yeah, you, you put her here. So really, it was you. Adam blamed God, and, and we have fallen into that pattern ever since. Ever since this, this has been our, our normal inclination when we fail. Right? We blame shift. This tendency was highlighted, I think, rather poignantly in an article from The Onion, which is a satirical news site. The headline of this article was, Study Finds Blame, Now Fastest Human Reaction. And according to the article, blame has now surpassed instinctive responses such as blinking and flinching as the fastest human reflex. And according to one human researcher, or excuse me, to one researcher, in the time it takes for a single sneeze or for the pupil to contract, to contract once, an average human can blame dozens, if not hundreds, of individuals. The article went on to say that accepting responsibility has degenerated into a purely vestigial reflex and would eventually exit the human race altogether. Now, this is one of those situations in which we, we, we laugh in order to keep from crying because I think we've all observed this. But friends, this tendency is destructive. Blame shifting destroys trust. It destroys relationships, and it keeps us from living in reality. So what really is the cause of our temptation? Where does the guilt actually lie? Well, let's look again at verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This text makes it very clear that when we are tempted and when we give in, there is one primary cause, that cause being our own desire. We sin ultimately 
because we want to sin. Sure, outside factors exist, right? There are societal factors. There are parental influences. There are situations that make sin more understandable, more conceivable. But the Bible actually gives us the dignity of responsibility. The ultimate answer to the question, why did you do that thing you know you shouldn't have, is you wanted to on some level. Even if on one level you didn't, at a deeper level still, you most certainly did. So then we shouldn't confuse the occasion for sin with the cause of sin. As we've already established, we all face trials. They are unavoidable in a fallen world. But trials themselves don't cause us to sin. They are simply the occasion for this to occur. You can think of it this way. Um, for a number of years, I was a teacher and one of the things that I was required to do as a teacher is I had to give students tests. Now, I wanted students to do well on the tests that I administered for a number of reasons. One, I, I wanted them to understand the subject matter. I wanted them to appreciate it and, and, and to flourish. That was my, that's what I at least said outwardly. Uh, there are also some selfish reasons for me wanting students to do well on a test. One, it made me look like a competent teacher. I'm, I'm effectively communicating the material so that it can be absorbed and then regurgitated. I also uh, didn't want to deal with the fallout of students not doing well in my class. Right? As a teacher, if students don't do well, then it creates a whole host of just kind of problems for you. You have to have individual meetings with students. You have to have potential meetings with parents. You have to write notes on report cards. There's all sorts of things where it's like, just do well on the test. Like, please, just, just come on. And so I made sure when administering a test that I would give a study guide. I would do my best to provide students with everything that they needed in order to succeed. But if a student came and didn't do well on the test, was it my fault? I mean, I certainly don't think so. Oftentimes, it's, it's students' lack of preparation. So is it you know, the fault of Netflix and TikTok for being more interesting than logic? I, that's, logic was the subject that I taught. No, I mean, ultimately, a student made a decision, I'm valuing this thing over and above succeeding on this test. So, so who's to blame? Well, ultimately, it's the student. It's the student for not prioritizing. So you students out there. See, on one level, we may want something, or we may say we want something. But in reality, our actions communicate. They often communicate something differently. Right? The same thing can be said about our sin. Why do we sin? It's because at the end of the day, we're doing the thing that our hearts most desire. So we shouldn't blame the occasion. We shouldn't blame God for our bad choices. But scripture does tell us that God will test us. But the test isn't the cause of our sin. The test is merely the occasion for our sin. So we shouldn't blame God. But again, we, we do this all of the time, don't we? Right, when faced with the reality of our sin, we often resort to justification. We often resort to blame shifting. You know, we reason. I know Jesus says to turn the other cheek, but he certainly did not have this guy in mind. When, when he said that. Or, you know, I know I'm not supposed to judge others, but God, 
shouldn't have made this person so messed up. Or, you know, I know I shouldn't be a bully on social media, but God shouldn't have made such a world in which people say such dumb things. Right? We, we blame shift. We, we justify. We turn things around. And I think one of the primary places I've seen this mindset on display is, is unfortunately, in marriages. I've had a number of conversations where people will, will talk to me about their spouse, and they'll make a comment, something to the effect of, you know, I didn't used to be like this. I wasn't this way before I ended up with this person. And oftentimes, I have to gently remind the person, like, no, I don't think that this person caused that in you. I think your marriage is simply the place where those things come, come to light. Like, you may not have thought of yourself as a jealous person, but I don't think your spouse is making you jealous. I think that this thing is, is just bringing it out in you. You may not have seen yourself as an angry person, but again, this new relationship, this new, uh, this new setup is, is bringing that out in you. But it's much easier for us to blame the other person and then in turn to blame the God who brought that person into our lives. What's the real cause of our sin? Again, ultimately, I think it's our desire. We sin because we want to. And our text tells us that when we are tempted, when we are lured and enticed by our own desire, disaster ensues. Now, the word translated here as desire in the Greek, it's, it's a word, uh, it's the word epithumeia. And it's often translated passions or passions of the flesh or sinful desires. But the word literally means over desires. See, the problem isn't that we have desires, it's that our desires are irregular and they're disordered. We take good things and we make them ultimate things. We turn them into idols. As John Calvin has told us in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. This is the way that sin often works in our hearts. See, sin doesn't necessarily cause us to want bad things. Instead, oftentimes at its essence, it makes us to want things too badly. Sin takes desires and turns them into over-desires. And notice the language here in, in our passage. When we're lured and enticed by our desire, James uses sexual metaphors to describe the way that sin takes root in our hearts. Right? There's seduction, we are lured, then conception, and then birth, until finally, sin fully grown leads to death. Our over-desires will destroy us. Now, interestingly, one of the, the more powerful descriptions I've heard of, of the effect of over-desires on our hearts and on our lives uh, comes from a man named David Foster Wallace. Um, I've mentioned him, I've probably mentioned him too much, uh, but I, I came across him recently um, in, in, in the thing I'm about to mention to you. You're in suspense now, I'm sure. Um, in, a, in another article in The Atlantic. Um, so it's a really interesting source to come across this concept. But David Foster Wallace was a novelist and a literature professor uh, who in 2005 was invited to give a commencement address. Now, he's not a Christian, doesn't ascribe to any particular religion, uh, but he says this. 
In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And then he went on to describe the various problems with what we usually pick as the objects of our worship. He says this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now again, Wallace was not a Christian, but again, not, not, a, a, not a member of any particular religion, but in that same speech, he conceded this, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of traditional religion, and he filled in a bunch of the blanks, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Our over-desires will eat us alive. So I think it's worth considering what are you tempted to worship? What good things might you be over-desiring? And I think Wallace's list is a good one. Right? Money, sex, power and success, intellect, all of these are good things. But remember, sin is not necessarily wanting bad things, but it can often be wanting good things too badly. So how do we deal with this? How do we escape temptation which leads to sin, which leads to death? Well, one approach, uh, one way we could deal with this is to do what Odysseus did. Uh, a famous scene in Homer's Odyssey, and maybe you were forced to read this in middle school or high school, um, is the story of Odysseus and the sirens. See, the sirens wanted to allure Odysseus to, to come to their island with their beautiful melodies, but that would lead to death. So what Odysseus did to battle that temptation is he had his men tie him down to the mast of the ship, and he told them, no matter what I say or do, do not untie me. This is kind of a severe way to deal with temptation, although it may be effective, especially in a pinch, right? If you feel temptation arising, perhaps there is a proverbial mast that you need to be tied down to. But ultimately, I don't think that this method is going to last very long. I think you're going to get tired of asking to be tied down to a mast, and I think people around you are going to be tired, eventually get tired of tying you down. And it also doesn't get to the core of the problem. James, however, offers a more lasting solution, and that is taking the time to recognize the goodness of God. And we see that in verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So immediately after describing the source of temptation, James doesn't give us a list of five things we must do in order to get rid of it. 
He doesn't give us a, a list of steps that we need to follow in order to battle temptation or to make sure that we are never tempted again. Instead, he issues a beautiful reminder of the goodness of God. He calls us to remember that God, the Father of lights who brought us forth by the word of truth, is the source of every good and perfect gift, that God is goodness itself. His goodness is not a mood, is not here today and gone tomorrow, because with him there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is forever loving, forever good, and forever faithful. In a world in which everything is constantly in flux, God is not. And his goodness is a foundation upon which we can build our entire lives. Do you see what James is doing here? He is giving us something far more powerful than a list of steps. Instead, he is giving us a vision, a hope of something that is truly worth desiring. He's telling us to not be so easily satisfied with the things of this world because those are mere shadows meant to point us to the ultimate good. There was a uh, 19th century Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers who wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And that the general thesis of that book was that the only way to break hold, only way to break the hold of a beautiful object, something that your soul has been captivated by, is to prevent, present your soul with something even more worthy, something even more beautiful. So when we are dealing with sin, when we're dealing with temptation, it's not enough to just say no. You can't just say no when you find out that your sin is due to the fact that your imagination has been captured by something. So then the answer to temptation isn't merely saying no, but it's a new passion. It's a new desire. It is a new love. Negation by itself won't do it. Our discipline, though good, is never going to be enough in and of itself. Sometimes we can't just say no. So what's the solution? We need to fall in love. One of the movies that was nominated for, for Best Picture last year was uh, Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. It was a, a semi-autobiographical picture that paid homage to Spielberg's love for filmmaking. Well, early in the movie, we meet the young Sammy Fableman, which is a stand-in for Spielberg. Um, and his life is completely transformed when his parents take him to see The Greatest Show on Earth, which is a 1952 film. When he sees this movie, right, he is enthralled. He's got a new passion. He's got a new love. His whole life takes a totally different trajectory. It becomes about seeing and making and just loving films. He was in love with movies. So how did Steven Spielberg become Steven Spielberg? Well, he, he researched, he spent hours working and honing and fine-tuning a craft. But ultimately, it was love. 
It wasn't something that he felt like he had to do. It was something that he wanted to do because of the love, because of this new passion. He had this new driving desire. So then what's the key to overturning our own temptation? Well, there may be times where we need to be tied down to the proverbial mast. I don't, I don't want to take away that from, you know, altogether. We can't live our lives that way. Instead, what we really need is the expulsive power of a new affection. We need to behold the Father of lights. We need to see that every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And that truth needs to captivate our hearts. So think for a minute. How have you observed the goodness and the beauty of our Father recently? kind of a silly example, but it's what came to mind when I was thinking about this question earlier this week. Uh, we have in our side yard these three concrete planters that kind of low to the ground, and there's a morning dove that decided to uh, make a nest in one of our planters, and uh, we, we discovered this because Oliver went to go play in our side yard. That's where he likes to play baseball. Um, it, he has to use some imagination in order to make that work, but he does. And he got too close to the planter, and then the, the dove flew out, and um, Oliver then screamed as though a bear was chasing him. It's like, oh, okay. Um, so we walked over to the planter. There's a nest there. It's like, oh, this is really cool. Well, within a couple of days of discovering the nest, we then saw these two like perfect little white eggs in the nest. It's like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. But then our job became, okay, how do we keep our five-year-old and three-year-old from destroying these two little perfect eggs? Um, so that, that's been an adventure. Uh, but earlier this week, I think it was on Tuesday, uh, we saw in the morning that there were two perfect little eggs. But by the time the afternoon rolled around, there's only one perfect little egg. And right next to it was this, like, precious little baby bird. And it was amazing. And, and honestly, the, the, the experience watching the mom build the nest, lay the eggs, the little bird hatch, and watching the mother's, I mean, I'm personifying, but watching the mother's love and sitting on the egg and, and sitting on the baby bird, which is thoroughly confusing to our children. Uh, it's like, why does the mom do that? It's like, because it's protecting it. But watching all of this happen, watching all of this take place, it felt magical. And in one sense, I know it's not. This is what animals do, right? They, they give birth to new animals. This is why we're all here. But in another sense, it absolutely is. And you think about it. Our God could have made a world that displayed his glory that was completely gray. Our universe could be just one gray box, and we would be able to behold God's strength. We'd be able to see his might. We'd be able to see his power in a gray box, because before there wouldn't have been a great box. But that's not the world that our God decided to make. He built a world that is filled with beauty. He made a world that is filled with love, that is filled with colors. The sun even shone yesterday. How cool is that? If we have eyes to see, we will be able to, to behold the goodness of God in so many different areas. And all of that, all of that is grace. Every experience 
of the sun shining on our face, every beautiful thing that we observe, anytime a piece of music moves us, anytime we get to hear a child tell you, tell us that, that, they, that they love us, anytime, just think about all of the things that bring you joy, all of that is grace. God didn't owe us a single minute of that. And yet continually, we get to experience the goodness of our God. When we see that, when we see Him as He truly is, when we begin to admire and appreciate, when we take in the beauty of our God, everything else kind of pales in comparison. Everything else gets, gets put into proper perspective. Now, that's just mentioning, like, the beauty that we observe in creation. That's not even bringing up, like, the beauty that we experience in redemption. All right, what's, the, what's truly the greatest gift that we've ever received from God? It's His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. When we look to Jesus, right, we, we see who the Father is. We see the goodness of the Father. We see the love of the Father. We see the mercy of the Father. And we behold the glory of the Father. And we see that most clearly displayed on the cross where Jesus identified with our sin and took our place where he lavished his love on us in a way that apart from him and hearing about it for 2,000 years, it would seem absolutely inconceivable. Like, you want to overcome temptation? What's the key? Look to Jesus. Allow your heart to be captivated by him. Look to the only one who truly remains steadfast under trial. Look to him loving sinners, inviting them to come and eat with him. Look to him reaching out to the lowly and giving them a place of honor. Look to him reaching out to you now, inviting you to come to him so that you might find rest and peace. Allow Jesus to capture your heart. As the old hymn puts it, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we pray that the Spirit this morning would apply these words to our hearts. Father, forgive us for the many ways in which we have turned from you, where we have succumbed to temptation because our desires lead us astray. Every single one of us, Lord, has experienced that at one time or another. So God, help us to, to repent Help us to see our sin for what it is. Help us to see its destructiveness. And God, help us to turn from it.
But Lord, we know that we're only going to be able to do that in a, in a lasting way if we see you as more desirable. So Lord, by your spirit, help us to see your greatness and your goodness. Help us to behold your love and your care for us. Help us to see you as the ultimate object of desire. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.